welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute where we offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Emma Ashford. And I'm Trevor Thrall. Welcome to another episode in our series on international relations after the coronavirus. For millennials like myself, our adult lives have in many ways been bracketed by big economic crises. The 2008 financial crisis occurred as many of us emerged from college, and the coronavirus pandemic is hitting the economy just as we enter our prime earnings years. But many of us have this incentive to focus on the personal aspects of economic turmoil. Um, It's also useful to step back and view these economic dislocations as the big scale international phenomena that they really are. Our guest today, Dan Dresner, wrote a book on the 2008 financial crisis entitled The System Worked, in which he argued that for all the fallout, the global political and economic response to the crisis was generally positive, paving the way for a recovery and preventing a slide into another Great Depression. It's not at all clear, however, that countries are managing this current crisis nearly so well. And one reason is that the Trump administration has made a habit over the last three years of unwinding key parts of the international economic system. We've had a trade war with China. We've had the death and rebirth of NAFTA. um, And it's really impossible to separate all these tensions from the ability of international economic institutions to respond to the current crisis. So Dan is here to talk to us today. He's a professor at the Fletcher School at Tufts University and a prolific writer of policy-related pieces for outlets like the Washington Post. We're looking forward to chatting with him about the future of the global international order and what impact coronavirus might or might not have. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Happy to be here. So before we get into the coronavirus questions, um, I think we should probably set the scene. Um, so you recently published an article in Reason magazine um, arguing that there really isn't a crisis with China, that it's that it's mostly been manufactured by the Trump administration, um, by, by others in Washington and elsewhere. And I thought we could start by talking about that, because this entire coronavirus crisis is framed by the U.S.-China relationship. Um, why do you say there's no China crisis? Well, let's put it this way. I, it, there's a China problem, and I, I'm perfectly willing to, to acknowledge that. There is no denying that you've seen a dramatic rise in China's power uh, over the last two decades, um, and that China's behavior in the international system uh, from a U.S. perspective would certainly be viewed as problematic. Uh, China's become more authoritarian domestically and internationally. They've clearly been willing to uh, throw their power around, particularly within uh, their neighborhood. But what the point of the article, and I do stand by this, is that it's been framed, and one of the things that's been striking is that despite tremendous amounts of, of partisanship uh, in Washington across a whole array of issues, you now see this sort of new hardening consensus that China is the big bad, um, and that we have to view China now the same way we viewed the Soviet Union during the Cold War. Um, and essentially what I'm, and in part, this is based on the notion that the previous sort of liberal internationalist approach to China, which was let's trade with them, let's encourage them to act like a responsible stakeholder, and they will then slowly evolve until they are sort of more like the United States, and that will work out really well. Um, it is safe to say that approach, that that old Washington consensus has failed, but you've now seen a new Washington consensus emerge that assumes that China represents a genuinely existential threat um, to the United States. And that's the part where I really do push back. And, and the point I'm trying to make in the article, I would say, is that 
really debates about China at this point are actually stalking horses for debates about the United States, which is to say that that American anguish and anxiety, particularly within the policymaker caste, about the rise of China is really about whether or not the United States is still uh, the unparalleled hegemon and whether we are on the, you know, still on the rise or on the decline? And if so, does this mean we need to completely, you know, change our system? And so it's this anxiety that I'm trying to to puncture in the essay, which is not to say that, that we can have an entirely appropriate debate about what to do with China, but I think it's infected with a certain fear about what ails the United States that we need to separate out. No, it's a really interesting point. Um, I've actually just finished reading Andrew Bacevich's new book, Age of Illusions. And the big question that he uses to frame the book is effectively, what is the point of being an American after the Cold War? You know, what do we have that pulls us together, that shapes us, that gives us any sort of common sense emission? Um, you know, he suggests climate change at the end of the book, but it seems very much that there's a lot of people trying to shape this to be a, a sort of a China as the, the other that we're all sort of pulling together against. Um, and, you know, if you go back and you look at sort of some of this China debate started in the late 1990s, early 2000s, um, and then it just went away when the war on terror started and we had something else to focus on. And now it's kind of it's back 20 years later. That seems to fit into that model, too. Um, so I, I think there's there's something to what you're saying about it being more about us than necessarily about China. Yeah. And also, I mean, it, I think it's also about the degree of American self-confidence, as you say. Part of the reason that you had the old sort of consensus about China was, you know, really that was formed right after the end of the Cold War at what you could argue was the sort of height of American self-confidence. Because um, while Fukuyama's end of history argument is derided, if you actually read it, his point was that at the end of the Cold War, the U.S. model of liberal free market democracy was the universal model. And that while there might be resistance to it or regional you know, alternatives, there wasn't a universal alternative. And so that kind of confidence meant that you could potentially try to create, you know, a more global order that was presumably oriented around, you know, U.S. preferences and that ineluctably other countries would would follow us. And then, as you say, you know, it also around China's entry into the WTO, um, you saw this debate emerge again. But that was in some ways the U.S. at its zenith of post-Cold War power. Um, think about that Paul Kennedy essay in the Financial Times in 2002, where after arguing before that the U.S. was on the decline, he said in 2002, the U.S. has never been more powerful. I've never I've never seen any great power as powerful as the U.S. is at that moment. Now, that was hyperbole. But, you know, fast forward 20 years and we're now in a sort of post financial crisis, post populist period um, in which even when you bring up the coronavirus, it seems like the United States is not handling it as well as China has. So this isn't to say that the United States doesn't have significant problems, but that's an, that's an intra-American debate that has nothing to do with China. Um, and I, I do think the, the, the generous way of thinking about it is there might be times where policymakers might invoke China as a way of, as an, as an outside specter to try to foster change within the United States. But the problem is that often leads to a demonization of, of China. And again, China is in many ways a problematic actor, but um, it's also a country you know, similar to the United States that is suffering from a demographic slowdown and an economic growth slowdown. And I think if you step back a little bit, you need to calm down. Yeah, I think that it, you know, in a lot of ways, hearing you talk, it, it seems to me that the, the China 
you know, faux crisis is overdetermined because you have China's actual rising power, U.S. actual declining relative power, you know, economically and other things. Um, you also have, um, you know, this rising nationalism that sees the point of being American to, you know, bring Basevich's book back up as no longer to be the, the you know, globo cop leader of the free world, but to keep things going at home, making America great again is the new point of being an American. And so all of these things, um, you know, as you point out, China can be a stalking horse or a, or a Trojan horse, maybe uh, for all of these kinds of things. And so you think Trump is doing one thing, but the actual outcome of this debate could be something entirely different. Right. And, and again, to be fair, part of the reason you have Trump and part of the reason you have this sort of hardening consensus is that there were elements of the old consensus that turned out to be wrong. Um, it was clear that, in fact, even as China grew richer, it was not necessarily going to become more like the United States, that it's, it's particularly since Xi Jinping uh, has assumed power, it's become much more authoritarian um, and to a certain extent uh, more corrupt as well. And I think the other thing that American policymakers did not anticipate and is now coping with is the idea that China might also use its market power uh, you know, in world politics as a way to get what it wants. Although I have to admit, this is where... As a uh, as someone who who wants U.S. foreign policy to, to be well executed, the idea that Americans are shocked that another country is using its market power uh, to you know to exercise economic statecraft and, and alter the world in a way to its benefit, well, I mean, just I knock me down with a feather. That's never happened before in the history of American foreign policy. Um, so it, it, it's sort of a there. Is, yeah, it it just seems like occasionally there are moments where. Uh, American elites are like, well, how dare China do the exact same thing we've been doing for the last two decades? I mean, perhaps, though, that that's uh, that offers us an avenue into discussing some of what the Trump administration has been doing in specifics, because it it does feel a little not only like there's this horror that, oh, my God, China is, is doing the same things as us, but also um, very much a feel of, well, I'm going to take my ball and go home. Um, from a lot of these international institutions. We, we've talked about this on here, but the, the WHO and things, but it's, I think, equally true for a lot of these trade arrangements. Um, you know, look at what they did with NAFTA, sort of re, uh, you know, killing it and then rebranding it, and suddenly it's a new deal, but it's basically the same deal. Um, and, and it feels like a lot of these... How dare you um, talk about new Coke NAFTA like that, Emma? <laughs> I am just outraged. No, you smack her, I believe, is the is how we <laughs> yeah, yeah, pronounce it. Is my, I do, I call it that, which my students do love. Uh, but it feels like so many of these things are are in many ways, um, you know, shooting ourselves in the foot rather than anything China's doing. Um, yeah, and and to be fair, I think part of what's going on is that part of this is just the pathology of the Trump administration, which is it's not like it has the most coherent policy making um, uh, machinery, and it, in some ways that comes. That, that's highlighted in particular with China, because you clearly have elements of the administration, think Peter Navarro or Wilbur Ross or Robert Lighthizer, that they genuinely think it's a zero-sum relationship with China and you need some new version of mercantilism in order to be able to do what you want. Um, and then you have others like Gary Cohn when he was you know, in the, the White House, then Larry Kudlow, uh, Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin, and frankly, I think Trump himself, um, that view... China as we just want to negotiate a better deal. We don't necessarily want to rupture things. And it is striking to me that one of the reasons the coronavirus pandemic gets as bad as it does in the United States is because weirdly Trump didn't want to 
pushed China on what they were doing or what they knew about the coronavirus because he didn't want to rupture the phase one trade deal, which in and of itself was a nothing burger anyway. But but yes, you're correct that that the Trump administration's view of how of what the U.S. should be doing in the global economy, I think, is that its market power is sufficient that it can somehow dramatically rewrite the rules in such a way that it gets a more favorable balance of trade and more favorable um, economic outcomes. And what's striking to me is just how badly it's failed at all of this. I mean, the, the biggest success is, you know, USMACA. And USMACA is actually less trade liberalizing than the original NAFTA. I mean, it, it, it generates a few small, modest benefits, but actually greater costs, I would argue. And meanwhile, the entire rest of the panoply of what the Trump administration has done in terms of foreign economic policy, you know, think about the tariffs on steel or aluminum or its approach to China or what have you. They have all been net negatives um, and in no way has, has helped uh, the U.S. economy. And it's worth remembering that even prior to the, the pandemic, the U.S. manufacturing sector was in a recession in 2019 because of the U.S.-China trade war. And the, the Trump administration had dispensed payouts to you know, U.S. farmers larger than what the Obama administration gave to Detroit uh, during the 2008 financial crisis. So, yeah, I think policy has been an own goal. I mean, I wonder to, to what extent part of that is just that the Trump administration is at war with itself internally, you know, that there's the, that on one hand, there is a movement to try and shut down trade chains and make, you know, the US a much more mercantilist economy. And then on the other hand, there's the sort of we'll make a better deal of it camp. And you, you can't help but feel that one is sabotaging the other. Um, but I, I do want to I do want to move on to coronavirus um, because, you know, China sort of forms the backdrop here um, and all of these sort of ongoing crises in the Trump administration. Um, but the coronavirus has created a, an economic crisis that is just strange and unlike any we've ever seen before. You know, you really can't easily compare it to the Great Recession, the Great Depression. Um it just looks very different and it looks very different across the world. Um, so, um, I mean, I, I guess let's just start with, you know, you wrote this book on the 2008 financial crisis. Let's talk a little about that, um, whether these are comparable at all and whether there's anything we can learn from 2008. Sure. Um, I mean, to the extent that, that I think the response to the 2008 financial crisis was largely good, um, and yeah, as you say, the, the book's title is The System Work, but I always like to joke when I was giving the talk that as someone who's Jewish, uh, the subtitle would have been, it could have been so much worse. Um, because that's really do how I feel about the, the, the response to the 2008 financial crisis. Um, that even though it was far from perfect, it also compared to the Great Depression was, was much, much better. This is a different crisis, as you said. In some ways, it's much more severe initially. Um, than even what we've experienced in 2008. And it's also much more, the sort of knock-on effects have, have uh, been more extreme. The, the depressing aspect has been the fact that in almost every sphere of response, the degree of international cooperation has been much lower. Um, that if you think, you know, in terms of actual the global health response, it has not been good. And indeed, the best exemplified by, um, first of all, the WHO's reluctance to criticize China in terms of its lack of transparency, but then also the Trump administration's refusal to play ball with the World Health or Organization and its decision that it will just take the ball and go home, which is probably not going to be terribly productive. Similarly, the sort of unilateral exercise by a bunch of countries in terms of, of sort of um, 
preventing exports of personal protective equipment and other medical technology. The only area that I can see where there actually has been, and where I do think you would count cooperation as actually surprisingly good, has been in the area of finance. And it's not a coincidence that that's an area that has been marked by A, U.S. leadership in the form of the Federal Reserve, um, and B, that is largely apolitical in that, you know, it's not that when central banks get together, that's obviously a political act, but central banks are by and large more heavily insulated um, as act as policymaking actors as opposed to legislatures or, or heads of government. And so uh, it is striking me that is one area where you have seen, you know, significant amount of cooperation. That, that said, I, I think the the big, un, the known unknown is whether or not this pandemic, which in some ways sort of leads to an artificially induced recession. I mean, the response to it was is that we all sort of agreed we would put the economy into a chemically induced coma, you know, no travel, no, you know, lockdowns and so on and so forth. And while those have not been perfectly adhered to, you know, you, you can look at the mobility data and the economic data, there was a significant effect in March and April. Um, the question is, will you see countries emerge from it prematurely and trigger another wave of the of the uh, the spread of the infection, which we're sort of seeing right now uh, in certain states in the United States. But also, if there is the development of either therapeutics and or a vaccine, how quickly does the global economy recover? In other words, is the, is the, is the scarring permanent or is this more like a scab that over time you barely noticed was there? Um, and this might be where I'm more optimistic, where I do think it tends to be more on the scab side, assuming that, you know, we have a vaccine relatively quickly, but I grant that this is a subject on which reasonable people can disagree. All right. So I have, I have two hard questions for you, Dan. One is the counterfactual, how, in what ways, as specific as you can be, would things have gone better or differently had someone other than Trump been president who was interested in having the United States take a leadership role in bringing together, fostering, enabling international cooperation. And then the follow-on is, given that we did have Trump, how much harder is it going to be during the next pandemic, say 10 years from now, for the United States, if it wants to, to take a leadership role? So I actually wrote a column for the Post, which was a sort of counterfactual world in which it was President Hillary Clinton um, and what would have happened. And I, I want to stress that I actually don't think it would have played out the way I suggested in the column. In the column, I sort of assumed a perfect response by the Clinton administration and to highlight the fact that it would still would have been domestic partisan, you know, sniping, that there would have been, you know, GOP outrage at the excessive measures that the Clinton administration would have taken uh, to restrict and, and you know, a movement of people. Um, and ironically, it would have been more outsized because if the pandemic hadn't been as widespread, it would have been seen as an overreaction. In some ways, this goes to the point I think that Fauci, you know, Dr. Anthony Fauci has said, which is anytime you think you're overreacting, you're probably reacting the right amount. Um, that said, I think it would be safe to say that just about any president except Trump, you would have seen the following things you know, occur. The first is you probably would have seen greater attention to the provision of certain key public goods like a, pan, you know, a, a pandemic preparedness plan, um, and not necessarily the removal of, let's say, the NSC directorate that would have handled this. I think much more importantly, though, it would have been safe to presume that any president, when told about this by, let's say, their CDC director or Secretary of Health and Human Services in January, 
would have acted more quickly and with more alacrity and also publicized it more. Um, and so I, I, I do think that things probably would have gone a little bit better. That said, would the pandemic have probably reached New York? Yeah, I think so. Because among other things, we now seem to know that, you know, it didn't come to New York from China, but rather from Europe. Um, on the other hand, I also think that I, I think underlooked in all of this was the Trump President Trump's unilateral announcement of the travel ban on Europe and the way the the truly god awful way in which that was announced, which was very unclear and required multiple walkbacks by administration officials, which I think made things far worse in the United States because it led to those ridiculous scenes in places like O'Hare and Dulles of massive numbers of people coming back from Europe, some of whom were undoubtedly infected, you know, and contagious, just, it was sort of a classic super spreader event. Um, and so I'd like to think that even if you'd had action a week or two earlier, you know, you're, I think I've seen estimates that said that would have cut the death rate by at least a third. Um, that's not nothing. And it also might mean that, you know, as we are now, it seems like our infection rate is not really falling anymore. It's more sort of plateauing. It would have been nice if maybe it would have actually fallen to the point where you could really talk about a, a sufficient, A, a sufficient reopening, but B, also the idea of an actual contact tracing regime, which, by the way, seems to have completely disappeared from discussion, which I'm I'm mildly appalled by because, uh, you know, I don't know about you, but back in March, I always thought of this as, OK, we're all going to lock down. They're going to develop, you know, tests, you know, to determine whether or not someone has this. And then once the infection rate has been low enough, we could actually potentially resume activity. And if there's an infection, we can then sort of trace where it comes from. And what's striking to me is that that last part has disappeared from public discourse, unless I'm, um, you know. Well, and, and, and there, Dan, you know, I, that's one of the ways in which I think having a, 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 a nationalist versus an internationalist as president, it makes a big difference. I can imagine an internationalist president looking out at South Korea, New Zealand, wherever and say, hey, guys, we're looking at you. You're doing it right. We're right. going to do that here. And then that having the spillover effects of telling Brazil to don't be stupid, yeah. do what your you know leader over here is. I mean, I, I because I think you know, like it or not, even if we don't lead, we're leading. By example, right. no, right? It, it, it's it, that's absolutely true. And I think that's the other thing, which is there are cases to be made for you know travel restrictions in this sort of in you know in in a COVID nineteen world. Um, so in some ways, people like Trump have have a small grain of truth. But that said. There's a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. The right way to do it is that you get the G20 together, you get the World Health Organization together, you get the UN Security Council together and say, okay, look, we're going to have to figure out how to do this in such a way that we don't instill panic, we don't instill people rushing to airports, because that's going to make things worse. Um, and, and the fact that that didn't happen is discouraging, to say the least. And if you think of, of uh, prestige as a, as a form of power in world politics, yeah, it's safe to say that the United States is has lost some of it. Trevor, your second question I am now blanking on because I'm really good at rambling. No, you know, I mean, you, you're almost rolled right into it, which is next pandemic is oh, anyone right. listening to the United States and how hard is international collaboration based on this sort of muff? So this is where I'm opt. This is the optimist in me. It will come out. There are two ways in which I do think, let's say a decade from now, if you see COVID-29 emerge or, or you know, COVID-30 emerge, um, there might be a better response. And I think it's for two reasons. The first is, as much as we might debate how the US has suffered relative to other countries in terms of what's going on, 
I do think that that with the benefit of, of sort of thinking 10 years in the future, the real question is going to be where is a vaccine developed? And if the United States wind up, winds up being the epicenter of any sort of key therapeutic or va- you know, vaccination innovation, that's going to be how people look at it. Um, and so that, that would still be a way in which the U.S. can emerge from this with some degree of its soft power intact. The second thing, and this is, again, maybe this is naive or optimistic of me, but I really do think countries, the best country or, or great powers should learn from their mistakes. And we committed a massive number of mistakes over the last three or four months. And so ideally what this means is that the next time we confront this, you have a, a you, you have an administration in power and you have policymakers at the sort of you know mid-level and, and career bureaucrats who say never again. We know we how we screwed this up in, in 2019. We're going to make sure this doesn't happen. The parallel I would use, actually, weirdly enough, is to how you've seen the military react in the last week or so to the debacle at Lafayette Square, which is under no circumstances should Secretary of Defense Mark Esper or the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Mark Milley, have participated in that. They shouldn't have gone across the street. That is an appalling um, uh, mistake on their part. What is striking to me, though, is that they've both come out and acknowledged that. And that's significant. You know, history will judge them however you want. But one of the ways in which norms are reinforced is not because they're never breached. It's what happens when the breach occurs. Are they then reinforced? And so that's where I'm slightly hopeful that, you know, we will have learned from our mistakes, not just we being the United States, but also globally. So, you know, we've, we've talked about this a bit at the U.S. level here about will we learn from our mistakes. But um, I'd, I'd like to talk sort of bigger and more structurally before we wrap up here. Um, so it seems like we've had this this really sort of one two punch. We've had trade war with China and to some extent with everybody in the world. Um, we've had the coronavirus. Um, and so the question is, are we going to see big shifts in the international economic system? Is this the kind of case? Is is Wilbur Ross right? And this is going to be good for the U.S. economy because supply chains are going to come back on shore. Um, I have my doubts, but it's a possibility. Um, so, you know, what changes are we going to see uh, as we look out, you know, the next five, 10 years? Right. As it as it turns out, I'm writing a, a larger scholarly piece on this um, for a, a journal. And I'm taking the contrarian position that, no, this actually doesn't change that much. Um, which is to say, if, if you think about, and, and this is in no small part based on the fact that when I teach the history of the global political economy, um, you know, I mention I think the 1918 influenza pandemic, and it gets maybe 20 seconds of discussion, um, and that's it. And part of the reason for that is that historically, it did not in fact play all that great a role, even though it led to a severe economic shock at the time. Um, you know, by twenty by by nineteen twenty, the pandemic had subsided, and it wasn't like people changed their behavior all that much. And indeed, it, it's interesting the sort of lack of cultural footprint uh, that that the nineteen eighteen pandemic has. Um, if you look at how things are now, what's striking to me is that I don't think the pandemic is going to affect the fundamental distribution of power. Um, in there are ways in which you've seen significant reservoirs of U.S. power, even during the pandemic, I think particularly in the financial realm. You've seen Chinese power in terms of how it controls the supply chain. Um, So I don't think it's going to lead to a disjuncture. What it might lead to is a mild acceleration of pre-existing trends, which, as you say, have been towards closure. Um, That you've seen, you know, U.S. officials uh, concerned about the globalization of the supply chain and a feeling like, you know, feeling like they need to either engage in home shoring or 
I guess, uh, resiliency of the, of the supply chain. Um, but even there, I would suggest that the, the, the fundamental shift is going to be less than people anticipate, um, which is to say, I think there are certain supply chains where you really do need to be concerned about this. Um, and, you know, my, my colleagues, Henry Farrell and, and Abe Newman, have written a great article about weaponized interdependence that if you take the idea seriously, suggest in point of fact, you want to make sure that, that other countries cannot do this in the same way that the United States has. Um, so there might be certain sectors where some degree of homeshoring or some degree of diversification of supply chains makes sense. But the truth is, is that even in the medical supply chain, there's research coming out that suggests it wasn't, you know, that the, this hasn't led to a crisis there, that in fact, there have been adequate supplies uh, done. Um, and so I'm not sure that, and, and you've also seen, by the way, the private sector resist pretty strongly efforts by the U.S. government to push them towards homeshoring. I mean, the, the exception here, I think, is semiconductors. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the reason that's an exception is that this means there's billions of dollars of federal money that would subsidize this sort of thing. So if the U.S. government is willing to shell out significant amounts of subsidies to aim towards homeshoring, yeah, I think the private sector in those areas will go along. But as a general principle, I think you've seen resistance from the business community on this, mostly because, among other things, the reason they globalized their supply chain in the first place was because of cost cutting. And while this is certainly an example where you might want to make sure that there's greater inventories, there's greater resiliency of the networks, and I think that might might have some effects. Um, you know, in the end, I don't think I don't think states are going to be able to tear apart with the prop, you know, tear asunder what the profit motive uh, strongly incentivizes. So, Dan, I want to bring us back a little bit, though, to our, our starting point, which is the China crisis. I'll, I'll use the scare, air quotes there. But uh, the one path I can see towards significant change is that the crisis that, you know, to be fair, I think hawks in the U.S. are manufacturing uh, will lead to increasing, along with the pandemic, increasing sort of delinkage and that that could then get cemented by hawks, you know, pointing at every little Chinese maneuver as evidence that they have bad intentions. And then that leading to yet further unravelings of the U.S. position or, you know, uh, activity in international organizations and treaties and, and so on. And to me, that's kind of, it, again, an own goal seems to be the most likely way that you see big change down there. It, that's possible. I, mean, I think there's something else we need to recognize here, though, which is this isn't a U.S.-only conversation. If there is a lasting legacy to the Trump administration, it is that the Chinese are now aware that this sort of president is a possibility. And even if he loses in 2020, this can happen again. Salon Khan. We're just right. we're just setting China up. Well, yeah. no, in some ways, but I mean, it, 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 it's the point that John Mearsheimer has made, among others, which is to say, even if you argue that the democratic system, you know, let's say we have a President Biden in 2021 and, and Biden, you know, running on a restorationist platform says, look, we're going to take China seriously, but we're not going to engage in, in own goals in terms of trade wars and so on and so forth. The Chinese might look at this and say, yeah, that's fine for until 2024. And then we're going to have to deal with a President Cotton or a President Hawley, you know, would then go back to what Trump has done. And so, yeah, part of the issue here is that if the Chinese look at the United States and decide there is no returning to what the status quo looked like, say, circa 2013, then even if you have an administration that might be more inclined to a more constructive relationship with China, it might not matter. 
which is, you know, the signal to the Chinese might be, we're not going to, there's no point in, in bothering with that. And by the way, this leads to this sort of reciprocal uh, feedback effect that, that you're talking about. So yeah, I am wary about that. Um, that said, it should be noted that even during the Cold War, there were areas in which the United States and the Soviet Union cooperated. Um, there was a recognition that arms control was probably a good thing, not just for the bilateral relationship, but for the world. Um, there was scientific uh, you know, exploration um, and cooperation in terms of things like the Antarctica Treaty. One of the interesting things, I think, in terms of the debate about U.S. and China going forward is, will it be possible to, to have even Hawks acknowledge that there are certain spheres of the relationship in which cooperation is a necessity, regardless of what you think of the nature of the regime? So think climate change is obviously going to be one example of this. And the most interesting thing to me is that in terms of polling, um, it's clear that the coronavirus is another. That for all the talk about, you know, that Pew just came out with a poll uh, that it conducted in March showing, oh, there was a, there's been a dramatic increase in Americans, you know, suspicious of China. And yet what's interesting is that, first of all, the coronavirus didn't trigger that um, because the polling was conducted in March and you would have expected sort of an increase over the month if that was the case. That wasn't true. And also, if you look at the, the sort of constellation of polling, most Americans believe that the U.S. should be cooperating with China to solve the pandemic or to at least address the pandemic, which, by the way, kind of makes intuitive sense. Um, so it'll be interesting to see the degree to which this sort of new hawk consensus in Washington um, changes if you have Trump losing and whether or not it reflects the sort of broad currents in public opinion. Yeah, um, we were mostly out of time, but I, I do think that's a really sort of a worrying scenario. It reminds me a lot of what we saw with Russia, where you know the Obama administration really couldn't make any progress with Russia because the Russians expected a return uh, to the Bush administration, you know, four or eight years out. So, um, so I'm, I'm afraid we're out of time. Um, but thank you, Dan, for joining us. It was a really interesting conversation. Thank you. So um, we will be back next time with more on the uh, coronavirus and how international relations will change after it. Um, I'd like to thank our production team. That's Tyler Shanahan, Cecil Sherman and Lauren Sander. And to thank you all at home for listening. Uh, we'll see you next time.